want to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 48. We'll be looking at the last couple of verses and moving on to 49. This was our big week of VBS. It was awesome. We had Captain Kerry and her large crew. We had about 150 kids. Uh, it was it was great. You should have seen this place. I mean, it was completely decked out. You wouldn't have hardly even recognized the stage area and all the different rooms. We just had an opportunity to just love on these kids, talk about the power of God's Word, to show them the love of Jesus Christ. They played games. They sang songs. They ate some pretty interesting food. It was just a great time. And one of the uh, amazing features of Vacation Bible School this year is that the kids had an opportunity just to give a gift. And they were going to be able to give some of their finances to buy blankets for kids in Africa, as well as sponsor a child in India at the Benjara, with the Benjaras in that school that we are working with. And so they had this little treasure chest. They said right up here by the stage. And at different times, the kids would just come in and put some coins or a dollar bill or whatever and put that in that little treasure chest. Well, on Thursday morning, I was up and I noticed my youngest boy, he was running around. He had this plastic bag of coins in his hand. I said, hey, what are you doing? And he's like, well, I, I'm... I'm going to give this. And I said, well, what, where did you get all that? And he says, well, well I've, I've been collecting. And really? And I'm kind of thinking, now, he's up. Uh, his brother and sisters are sleeping. I wonder if he's collecting coins from them. So I said, now, did you, uh, did you take that from your brother or your sisters while they're sleeping? Kind of like a little Robin Hood deal you might have going on. He's like, no. And then I'm thinking, well, maybe this is where all my spare change is going. And he's like, you taking this from mom and dad? He said, no, I've... I've just been saving it, and, and today I'm just going to give it all to the children and to God. So we just, uh, I was taken aback, and we just stopped right there and said, Hey, Cameron, let me just pray with you, and let's just thank God that he's given you such a heart to be generous and for the privilege to be able to give to him and to help these kids. And so we just sat right there and we prayed, and I'll tell you one of the things that happened. It left in my mind a lasting impression. Hopefully it's a memory that I'll never forget. And I find that people have a way of doing that. Now, some people leave negative impressions and they need extra grace required, uh, but many people leave strong, indelible marks, positive expressions of how God is working in their heart and it leaves you with a lasting memory. And I want to ask you, what kind of lasting impression are you personally leaving? What words would people describe when they think of you? How is your relationship with Christ reflected in how you live or you act or you behave? What sort of lasting impressions are you leaving? You know, I think we know this, but as believers in Christ, God seeks to demonstrate His power through our lives. And we are, in a sense, to be leaving lasting impressions of the life of Christ with the people we come in contact with. And that is why the passage that we're at in the book of Genesis at today, this, this scene of Jacob's final hours, why it is so powerful. And it gives us a glimpse of just how amazing God is and what he can really do. And so we're going to pick it up here at the very end, Genesis chapter 48, uh, verse 21. And then Israel, speaking of Jacob, that Israel is the name that God gave him, said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. And I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. 
You know, one of the things that, that God is able to do is that His power is able to give us confidence in His presence. If you want to leave a lasting legacy of trusting God, then you're going to want to make statements like Jacob does to Joseph when he says, but God will be with you. Boys, I'm going to be out of here, but God will be with you. He'll listen to you, he'll help you, he'll lead you, he'll go before you, he will guide you. And notice what else he says in verse 21. Not only is he going to be with you, he will accomplish his work through you. He says, and he will bring you back to the land of your fathers. In Jacob's final breaths, he is uttering the fact that he finds God to be completely faithful. He has an undying trust in God, and he is expressing it here with his words, and God will bring you back. You know, Jacob had a lot of failings, tons of shortcomings, all sorts of problems. And he knew that God's faithfulness was not dependent upon his own deservedness. Jacob knew that despite his failings and his falterings, that God would be faithful and God would come through. You know what he did here? He's passing on that assurance to his sons. In fact, earlier, remember, uh, we looked at it last week, but in Genesis 48, verse 15, he said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walk, this God, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. God is my shepherd. He is the one who provides for me. He cares for me. In fact, he says in verse 16, The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, speaking of the angel of the Lord, he has rescued me, he has guided me, corrected me, healed me, he's led me, he's sustained me, he's strengthened me, he's protected me. He is my God. And my total assurance in life is that he's not only with us, but he can accomplish his work through us. And let me tell you, as important as life insurance is, and don't get me wrong, that's nice to have, it's important, but it is infinitely less important than having life assurance. To be able to say to your son or your daughter or your grandchildren, you're going to make it, because even as God has been faithful to me, he will be faithful to you. And what you want to do is, you want to, you want to tell them that. I mean, don't settle for a piece of the rock from Prudential, gang. What you want to do is you want to seek the peace of the rock of ages. You know, being in good hands with Allstate, well, that's, that's great. But it doesn't compare by being in the good hands of the Almighty. And that's what we find here. Jacob, he is completely in tune with God, and he trusts him. Nothing is more important for your family than your confident expectation that the same God who walks with you every step of the way, he's going to do the same for them. You know what that does? It takes all the fear out of the future. You see, the power of God is able to give us confidence in His presence. A confidence that we can relay to others. Let me show you something else that God is able to do. The power of God is able to give also clarity of the future. And in the book of chapter 49, verses 1 through 28, we're going to find the farewell address that Jacob actually, excuse me, yeah, Jacob actually gives to his sons. And so he kind of rises from his unusual stature of just being the father to these boys to actually almost stepping into the role of a prophet. And he is going to actually focus on a striking trait of character, and that's he's going to serve as either a blessing or some sort of censure for his boys. And Jacob's words uh, basically constituted a prediction of future developments based on the father's knowledge of the character of each of his sons. And each one of these boys, as they come before him, they know 
that what he is uttering to them is of great significance. And so, for one thing, uh, he's going to reveal that um, some of their past behavior is going to have dire consequences in their future. Three of these sons are going to learn that their past conduct had cost them their future inheritance. You know, it kind of goes to that principle, we always reap what we sow. But something else is true. Jacob's prophetic words that he is going to give here give great encouragement to the descendants during the difficult time of suffering that they would have in Egypt, as well as the many unhappy years in the wilderness. When they could go back to these words and realize that God indeed was going to give them this promised land, and that these tribes that originate from these boys will continue. You see, uh, more important than Jacob's last witness and testimony, what this really is, is a beautiful revelation of the gracious Lord who had cared for his servants so, these so many years. And so, chapter 49, verse 1, Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves, that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. And so he gathers his boys around him, and he says, verse 2, Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. And he begins with the very first one. He starts off with the firstborn son, the son of, first son of Leah, Reuben. And he says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Reuben, you are my firstborn. You are to have first place in everything. And at this time, Reuben's probably thinking, this is going to be great, because he should, technically, be the one who receives the double blessing, the double inheritance. And the reason they do that, gives the double inheritance, is that the idea is that you would not only care for your family, but extended family. And so you care for the mother. Um, if there were unmarried sisters, you needed uh, more privilege because you had a greater responsibility. Reuben's thinking, my father is going to give me this double inheritance. But that is not to be the case. He says, verse 4, Uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. And what is taking place here is Jacob is recalling an event that took place. Actually, it was a, a period of time where Reuben actually had an adulterous relationship with one of Jacob's wives. And Reuben had never come to his father, addressed it, confessed his sin. There seemed to be no brokenness where that situation was ever resolved. And what Jacob is doing is saying, you are uncontrolled as water. You have instability of character. You're going to forfeit your place of power. You are as unstable with water. You're like water without restraint. You did not control yourself. You never addressed this with me. And he said, you simply will not have preeminence. You know, unconfessed sin makes a person unstable. And whatever dignity or majesty he might have had, his tribe received scant mention in, mention in Israelite history. It produced not one judge, not a prophet, no military leader, or any other important person. In fact, we find 400 years later in Deuteronomy 33 that Moses is praying that this tribe doesn't even die out. Well, that was the firstborn. Then comes the next two. Simeon and Levi are brothers, he says in verse 5. And then he says, Their swords are implements of violence. Let, not, let my soul not enter into their council. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, 
and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And so when he comes to Simeon Levi, he says, listen, because of your fierce and cruel revenge that you took on the people of on Shechem and his people, and this is an event that remember we talked about where uh, Jacob's daughter Dinah had been raped, and these two, Simeon and Levi, led a basically a massacre of these people. And that's why he refers to them that your swords are implements of violence. They're instruments of cruelty. And what they did is, this is actually kind of an outrage of the sacred rite of circumcision, which they imposed on these people and said, okay, if you, you want to be with us and you want to follow God, you're going to have to be circumcised. And so they went ahead and did that. And then after they had, they were kind of all in this pain and they had this situation where all the males had been circumcised, then they went in and they slew them all and they killed them. And, and Jacob is saying, you guys your soul will not enter into my counsel. Not only were you cruel to men, but you were even cruel to animals. You lamed them. And did you see what he, he says there? They slew the oxen, and they slew men, excuse me, and they, through their self-will they lamed oxen. And what this is referring to is they would actually take their swords and they'd cut the tendons on animals like these oxen and basically make them unusable. They wouldn't be able to use, uh, have any usefulness anymore. Jacob says, you are not going to enter into my assembly. In fact, you're going to be scattered throughout Israel. Scatter them in Israel, he says at the end of verse 7. And that's really what happened. Simeon actually eventually was absorbed by the tribe of Judah. And the tribe of Levi, although they actually have a great change of heart later, they were actually never given the land, but rather 48 towns to live in. And they were scattered throughout the land. And so, you know, isn't it true, gentlemen? But these two besetting sins are the sins of most men. Sexual perversion, anger, and violence. Jacob says, I am not proud of you. I am not happy with you. I don't see you changing. The future doesn't look good. I am ashamed of you. And so they listen to their dad who's on his deathbed. And he says, you boys will not enter into my council. You know, what these men need... What we all need is a Savior. And hold on. Watch out for what is to come. We know that some of the kids from Jacob's family are really their good kids. But these first three have been very bad. And I just want to tell you this. In in families, there are times where some of the kids, or maybe one of the kids, simply just turns out bad. I mean, they all have the same family, same dad, Some of the kids turned out great. In the case of these first three, that wasn't the case. Now, some people have the idea that, hey, if your parents are Christians, then their kids are going to grow up, and they'll be Christians, and they're going to be fine, and there's going to be no problems. Well, that's not in this book. Remember even the very first family? You see it really early on, Genesis chapter 4. Adam and Eve, they have two kids, Cain and Abel. Abel loves God, so what does Cain do? He murders him. Same parents, same life, same experiences, same everything, just a different heart. And especially as they grow into an adult, they are responsible for their own heart condition before God. And these boys are like that. Some of them are going to do well, some of them haven't. And really, it's a heart issue. And what we need to do is we need to pray earnestly that God would grab the hearts of our children from a very early age. You know, it's it's not really easy to connect the dots between good kids and good parenting. 
And we're going to see that even here in the case with Jacob and his family. Well, we've had the first three boys. Now we're on to the fourth. Verse 8. Judah. Judah. His name means praise. And so listen to what he says. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. And your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. And your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. And from the prey, my son, you have gone up. And he couches and he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? Now, Judah has got to be thinking, hey, what, what is this referring to? Because to refer to him as a lion's whelp, and that he couches down and that he's a lion, um, who dares rouse him up? The lion is the king of beasts, okay? And so, really, it's also the animal that signifies or demonstrates royalty. And Judah is trying to process and figure out what exactly is being said here. And then, verse 10, and you want to probably underline it and certainly highlight it or put a star by it, you find this amazing prophecy of what is to happen in the line of Judah. He says, verse 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh, that word Shiloh means to him to whom it belongs, until Shiloh, which became a reference to Messiah, comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is one of the earliest messianic promises that we have in the scripture. And what he is doing is he is identifying that it's from the tribe of Judah. From Judah's line will come the Messiah. Now this is just absolutely amazing. Because you remember back in Genesis 38 how wicked Judah had been. And yet God shows that from this one who is so wicked and who God who brought about a change of heart... God is going to bring about a Redeemer. And this is really fascinating, especially when you consider how sinful Judah had been, that God was going to bring the line of the Messiah through him. And it's fascinating because the prophecies of the Old Testament speak of a coming deliverer, and and this verse identifies that he's going to come through Judah. Now, By one account, there's about 333 distinct promises concerning the Messiah. And more than 100 of those promises were literally fulfilled at the first coming of Christ. And these prophecies were made hundreds of years in advance. And so God's word narrows the focus down to one particular person, Jesus the Nazarene, who is the Messiah. And so all the evidence show, not only that is this book a supernatural book, but that the person they speak to is a supernatural being. And so the very first one is found in Genesis 3.15, where we find that God promises that from the seed of a woman is going to come someone who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And then in chapter 12 of Genesis, we find that the Messiah, the one who will bring blessing, is going to be born from the line of Abraham. And then in this scene here, in Genesis 49, verse 10, this is about 1858 B.C., before Christ, that this, this coming one, this ruler to whom all the, all the obedience of the people belong, he is going, is going to come, he's going to come through the line and the tribe of Judah. And then at about 1000 B.C. in 2 Samuel, we find that it is going, this Messiah will come to be the son of David. 
And that in Micah 5.2, he's going to be born in the city of Bethlehem. And about the same time, Isaiah prophesies that he will be born of a virgin. That ought to really narrow it down. And that in Isaiah 53, this is someone who will suffer and die for our sins. And Daniel, in chapter 9, verses 24 through 26, actually says that it gives a calculation that we can identify that this will take place at about A.D. 33. And, and like it speaks of like in Psalm 1611 and Psalm 2, that this one is going to rise from the dead. And even Bible critics admit that all these prophecies given 200 to several hundred years before the time of Christ eliminates any guessing or trends of the times. They actually speak of the very ancestry, the place of birth, the times of Christ's coming. There is no other religious book that offers anything that compares to this. These are supernatural predictions. His family lineage, his birthplace, his speaking and healing ministry, his triumphal entrance, his betrayal, mocking, punishment, crucifixion, his resurrection, friends... All of this points to just one man. And these messianic predictions make no sense apart from the life of Jesus Christ. When these many messianic prophecies are combined, the prophetic doorway becomes so narrow that only one person can fit through. And that's what we have in Jesus. When you look at his sinless character... His miraculous ministry, his resurrection, his amazing fulfillment of prophecy. What this says is completely authenticate that he indeed is God's promised Messiah or anointed one. The only one that can truly bear the penalty of our sin and offer us eternal spiritual life with God. In fact, it's really interesting. The final book of the Bible, Revelation 5.5. Do you know how Jesus is referred to? He's referred to as the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He is the overcomer. He's the one who can break the seven seals. And so what we find here when we look at this prophecy with Judah is that Judah is told by Jacob, it is through your line will come the Messiah. And let's get it straight. Who is this Jesus Oftentimes, Jesus is portrayed as Jesus, meek, and mild. And indeed, he is. But he's far more than that. He is the prince of peace. He is a ruler. He is the king of kings. When you find him in the book of Revelation, he is the conquering king. He is the absolute lord of the universe. Whatever he speaks happens. He is able to bring judgment. He comes to wage war on those who are his enemies. And really, he is... He is the one who can completely bring justice. And the central question that every person has to answer is, what are you going to do with Jesus, who is the King of Kings? He's the King of the universe. And when we come to church, we come to worship Him, the God who is reigning. When we take communion, we do so to remember the body and the blood of Jesus who has suffered and died on our behalf. We want to gain a bigger, grander, fuller vision of who he is. Jesus is far stronger, holier, mightier than we ever envisioned. And so we come to him with confidence. He is a reigning king. He is reigning in our hearts. And he has promised that he is going to return and reign upon this earth. And he is, like this text says in 49.10, He is from the tribe of Judah. Judah is going to carry the hope of Israel in his person. 
Well, there's some other boys that Jacob summons, and he kind of summons them one at a time. And I want to just kind of briefly go through them. In verse 13, we have Zebulun. It says, Zebulun will dwell at the seashore, and he shall be a haven for ships, and his flank shall be toward Sidon. Zebulun's territory now actually never bordered the Sea of Galilee or the Mediterranean, but it was on a very important trade route, the Via Maris, and it was traversed by sea traders who were moving through her territory. And then the next one is Issachar in verses 14 and 15. He says of this boy, Issachar is a strong donkey, lying down between the sheepfolds. When he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave and forced labor. And Issachar was an industrious, robust, robust, hardy, stalwart tribe, and they lived up to their name, which means a man of wages. The next one is Dan, verse 16 through 18. Dan shall be a judge, shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that the rider falls backward. For your salvation I wait, O Lord. Now, Dan, the name actually means judge, and he fathered a, for a pretty aggressive tribe, and they served as, to judge the nation. But one of the things they would not be known for is their moral stature or their religious faithfulness. In fact, Dan would uh, later abandon his land allotment after they moved into the Promised Land. He'd migrate to the extreme north of Israel. And in 931 B.C., Jeroboam sets up a golden calf in Dan to provide opportunity for pagan worship. And that's why I find verse 18 to be so interesting. It's like Jacob has a glimpse of how wayward Dan will become. And so he cries out, verse 18, For your salvation I wait, O Lord. His closing cry is just a hope for Dan in the day when salvation would indeed come to Israel. And later, however, like in Revelation chapter 7, Dan is omitted even from the list of the tribes, as recorded in Revelation 7. And so he just makes this request for deliverance, that God would bring salvation. Next is Gad, verse 19. As for Gad, raiders shall raid him, but he will raid at their heels. And Gad's people uh, were exposed. They lived in the Transjordan. That's kind of the east side of the Jordan River, uh, where people were making invasions upon them, and yet they were valiant fighters, and they are worthy of victory and commendation. The next is Asher, verse 12. As for Asher, his food shall be rich, and he will yield royal dainties. Asher benefited greatly from occupying that rich coastal land, kind of the north of Carmel, and it provided gourmet delights for the palace. And then he speaks of Naphtali in verse 21. Naphtali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. And this speaks of like a deer with speed and agility and military, military prowess. And the song of Deborah and Barak actually speak of the representative eloquent words that come from this particular tribe. That leads us to Joseph. Now, only the promises given to Judah can rival the praise that he gives Joseph. And so in verse 22, he says, Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. 
speaking of Joseph, he's, he's giving this picture. He's like, here is this bough, but it's next to the spring. And that's why it enabled to give such life and to bear such fruit and just branch over the wall. That's really kind of a picture of what living in, with faith in a loving God looks like. God fills us. He is like the water that gives us refreshment and strength. And through our relationship with God, we're able to branch out, branch forth, bear fruit. And so that's what Joseph is like. And he says in verse 23, the archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him. And this is really speaking of all the turmoil that Joseph had gone through, especially in his earlier years when his brothers had such fierce opposition toward him. They were bitterly attacking him and they harassed him. And yet, Joseph stood strong because he is God's man and trusting in God's presence. Verse 24, but his bow remained firm and his arms were agile. It's like this. Instead of firing off his bow and when, like for instance, when the brothers had, because of the famine, had to go to Egypt and Joseph just taking out all of his... Uh, hurt and disgust with them. No, he stood strong. In fact, his arms were agile. They actually reached out to the very same people that had hurt him. And the secret of his life is what Joseph is highlighted for and Jacob highlights. There's five different titles used by Jacob to describe God. And they begin here at the end of verse 24, from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. God was the strength in Joseph's life. And he says, from the shepherd, the one who guides and protects, just like a shepherd guides and protects his flock, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, speaking of stability and trustworthiness. And he says in verse 25, from the God of your father who helps you, and by the Almighty, the El Shaddai, who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, Blessings of the deep that lies beneath, like from the earth. Blessings that speaking from the heavens, speaking about the rain and dew that is coming down. Blessings of the breast and of the womb. You will not only have a land that is fruitful, but your family will be fruitful. And in verse 26, he says, The blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors. Up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, they may be on the head of Joseph, and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. And so remember we saw last week that Jacob had adopted Joseph's two boys, and actually made them like equal with Joseph's brothers. And so, Joseph is the one who receives the double portion. He receives the double portion of the inheritance going to his two sons. And Judah receives what Reuben should have had, and that is leadership of the family. For from him comes Shiloh, the one, or messianic term, referring to the Messiah. And so we find Jacob's giving great blessing to Joseph and highlighting just how great God has been in his life. That leads us to the final boy, and that is Benjamin. Verse 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, and in the morning he devours the prey, and in the evening he divides the spoil. And this speaks of Benjamin. They were a warlike tribe by nature. Uh, they became well known as archers and slingers, and that is what Jacob is highlighting in his final statement made to this boy. And so we find here that the twelve tribes of Israel, verse 28, 
28. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, every one, with the blessing appropriate to him. It's not that he just said, hey boys, want you to come over here? God bless you. I hope everything works out well for you. No, he knows these boys well. And he specifically prays for each of his sons. He rebukes their sin. He encourages their faithfulness and their strength. He acknowledges and he admonishes. He points out areas of weakness. And he knows all of his kids are different. You know, these boys, if they listen to him, especially the ones in which he had to issue a censure, if they change, things could be different. And he is bringing that to his attention. So, what we find with God, God is able to do some pretty amazing things. He's able to give us confidence in His presence. He's able to give us clarity of the future and giving us this kind of revelation, prophetic in nature. There's something else that uh, God is able to do. And that is, He's able to give us commitment to His promises. Notice how He ends His life. Look at verse 29. Then He charged them and said to them, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, and the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham his wife and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it, purchased from the sons of Heth. He specifically identifies exactly where this is. He says, this is where I want to be buried. My future is with my people, and I am going to be gathered up to them. We are not of Egypt. I am not enticed by Egypt. This is not our home. We are only here temporarily. What I want you to do is I want you, when I die to take me and bury me with my ancestors and my relatives. And that's really how Israel sees themselves as a people. The ancestors are gathered with their people and it's like one giant living organism under and in the hand of God. And so, after making his final statement, I want to be buried in the promised land. Verse 33, when Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. And then Joseph fell on his father's face, and wept over him, and kissed him. I want to just tell you that a living faith leaves a lasting impression. And that's what we have when we have the life of Jacob. Jacob was far from perfect had a lot of problems, did some things that were absolutely not advisable, wasn't always a good parent, didn't always reject passivity or accept responsibility or lead courageously. But we find that Jacob finishes life well. He finishes praising God and blessing Him, calling Him the shepherd of his entire life. He addresses his boys. He's got an eye to the future. He is completely committed to the promises of God. And that is how we are to live as well. God wants to leave lasting impressions through our lives and in our lives. And you know how he does that? He does it by us believing the scripture. 
God's inspired word, his record of past faithfulness, it, what it does is inspire in us faith and belief and confidence in God. He also develops our faith through his Holy Spirit, and his Spirit prompts us to believe, and he actually gives us the strength that we need to do as he's asked. And when this happens in our life, it, it develops our faith in him. And when we hear the stories of other saints... How God has been faithful to them. How they personally witness God's hand at work in their lives, especially during trials. What that does is it develops our faith. And even us, we can look at scenes in our own life where we have personally experienced God's hand at work. Whether we provided a job or a home or a friend or our salvation a church, a ministry, how we we saw him bring healing to perhaps some deep issues in our life, how he's given us a ministry and the ability to connect and disciple other people. Maybe he's provided a a spouse, family, a meal, a breakthrough through some season of difficulty. Maybe we went through discouragement, despair, and yet we saw God bring us through, and we are still praising his name and clinging to his goodness. What this does is develop faith in him. And the other thing that really develops our faith in God is to seek Christ earnestly, regularly, thanking Him for all that we have in Him, worshiping Him, asking Him of things, waiting upon Him. You see, seeing God's faithfulness in the past gives us confidence to trust Him with our future. And a living faith leaves a lasting impression. And that's what we have in Jacob. His last impressions left lasting impressions. And just like God worked about such a great work of faith in his life, God desires to do the same in us. And it will be when we have a living faith, for a living faith leaves a lasting impression.